So now let's get into step 11. Okay, so wait a minute. So step 10, prejudices. Is step 10 only done at night? And is talking about my feelings and why am I upset at step 10? Okay. So my step 11 prejudices <coughs> is that my step 11 can be my religious practices only. And that step 11 is simply saying prayers, especially saying the serenity prayer when I'm upset. So step 11 is actually three different practices. <coughs> it's a morning routine, an evening routine, and pausing throughout the day. So like I said, the step 10 is, this, is the right now step. Yes? Could you repeat your prejudices? Sure. That it's only my religious practices and that it's simply saying prayers, especially the serenity prayer whenever I'm upset. So the first thing we're going to go over is this evening, evening <coughs> routine, which is the top of 86. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. So once again, I thought step 10 was at night. And I did it by destructively reviewing my day. <laughs> you know, I would write down where I was good and where I was bad. And if I was bad more than I was good, it was like Santa Claus. You know, if, I, if I'm good, I'm going to get gifts under the tree. And if I'm bad, I'm going to get coal in my stocking. We're constructively reviewing our day. We're trying to grow towards our, our higher power. So where were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? There's our fourth step again. Do we owe an apology? Step nine. Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? There's step five. Were we kind and loving towards all? Now anybody that says that, if they send me their step 11 more than a couple days, I confront them about it. I'm like, really? <laughs> and they're like, well, yeah, I was very nice to people. I'm like, what were your thoughts saying? That counts? Because think about it, if our thinking is the problem, if I am looking at someone and I'm proud because I didn't say F you to their face, but I'm saying F you in my head, that's just as destructive for my recovery. So it's my thinking that it's being treated. So when I'm, when I'm kind and loving towards all, I have never said yes to that. I'm lucky if it's 60% if of the day, I'm kind and loving towards all. Um, what could we have done better? So here's the difference I've seen between 10 and 11. Step 10 is I'm trying to get undisturbed because it's dangerous for me to be in restless, irritable discontent. In step 11, this is where I grow towards being um, the person God always intended me to be. So the questions in step 11 at night, what could I have done better? And what corrective measures should be taken is what I'm taking into the next day so I don't have to do as many step 10s tomorrow. So the way I think about it is we talk about these ideals, right? We talked about them before. <coughs> I have an ideal of who I am as a daughter. I'm doing my review at night and I'm seeing how I interacted with my mother and I say to myself was my behavior with my mother in line with my ideal and the difference between my behavior and what my ideal is is, is where I could have done better and what corrective measures could be I need to do tomorrow. Does that make sense? And that's where I grow and those differences become closer and closer and sometimes they widen because I'm a human being but this gives me the opportunity to get clear on what my ideal is and how I'm going to work towards it. Does that make sense? Okay. Could you repeat what you said about um, step 11 is how you grow in, in your faith or spiritually. But what was step 10? Step 10 is, is the right now step. 
that you're just trying to get undisturbed because something's happening right now and you know you can't be in the restlessness, irritability, discontentment. Make sense? So like this morning when I was panicked about, you know, when I had to check out, that was a step 10 and I was led to calling the front desk. Um, when I was doing my step 11 yesterday, I was really amazed at how much I've grown with traveling. Because like I said, I've never really traveled the last couple of years. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so much more comfortable with what the TSA line, the TSA line is like, you know, going to the airport, packing. The fear of forgetting toothpaste would like overwhelm me. And now I kind of have little things where I know what I have and if I forget it, it's no big deal. So I was looking at it more globally in my step 11, but step 10 was undisturbed right now. And I don't want to be disturbed while I'm talking to you guys, right? I want to be clear. So I want to take care of it right now. Make sense? The last sentence towards the bottom is what corrective measures should be taken. Now the next one is <coughs> upon awakening. So it's our morning routine. So the way that I think of that is this is now a proactive step 11. Because I know what's going to bother me. I'm going to be selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. My defects are going to pop up. So why do I even have to wait until they pop up? Why can't I ask God to remove them right now? There's a, so there's a line in the second paragraph, full paragraph on 86. It says, before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking especially asking it to be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. So I love that word divorce. I actually call that divorce prayer. So what do we divorce? We divorce something we once loved. And I loved my defects. That's how I kind of felt like I had control. That's the way I could make things happen by manipulating people. But now I need to be separated from those things because I know that's exactly what's tripping me up. Three lines up from the bottom of the page. It says we relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. Have we heard that in the rooms? <coughs> the common room. I love when I hear something and someone goes, tries to put it in context. <coughs> and I was in a meeting. The guy goes, wait a minute. What is the sentence before that? So the sentence before that is here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought, or a decision. So if I'm not asking God in first... I better not relax, it's not going to be easy and I'm probably going to struggle. So the whole point, the reason I can do that is because I'm asking God into my day. On page 87, I'm just going to pick out sentences because of time. <coughs> Third line down, being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we're going to be inspired at all times. So what I needed to do when I, when I graduated, when I um, recovered eight years ago, is not sufficient today. I'm consistent. I know how to be seven years sober. I don't know how to be eight years sober. So I, I'm always, and I always, often use the idea of being a mom. When you first find out you're pregnant, you're terrified. You've never been a mom. How are you going to do this? You have the baby. You start to feel experience with the infant, and the damn thing turns into a toddler. And now you're panicked because, oh my God, what do I do with a toddler? And then, God forbid, they go off to, 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 to kindergarten. And you're like, oh my God, how do I handle this? Mm -hmm. Then they become a teenager. And then they become a, an adult. So even though you're an experienced mother, you're never experienced in the sense that your child is constantly changing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that is why I will never be experienced in the spiritual life because life is constantly changing. 
And what I found for myself is life grows bigger. God gives me more opportunities. I'm in freaking Seattle. Like this is nothing I could have imagined 10 years ago, you know? And it says, we might pay for this presumption with all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. So when I screw up, I get to laugh at myself. This is not about being perfect people. I often use this, this one example. I'm, I'm an avid, avid, avid reader. And um, those uh, Fifty Shades of Grey books came out. And there's three of them. And I just ran through them. I loved them. And I was sitting in a coffee shop studying. I was still in graduate school. <coughs> and um, I was on Facebook and I saw an old boyfriend. And so I went, oh. And I you know, messaged him or whatever it's called. And then I said, God's will be done. And I'm like, that's not God's will be done. This is me getting all worked up over Fifty Shades of Grey and trying to get a booty call from 25 years ago. And I'm like, oh, God. And I'm laughing. And then I looked on his Facebook page, and I'm like, okay, apparently I haven't just changed in the last 25 years. God, please protect me that this guy does not come contact me. I'm like, oh, my God. But I could laugh at myself. I'm going to do absurd things. I'm going to, I'm going to be silly, which once again feeds into my fear of being laughed at. It's, it's really good for me to, to, to be able to laugh at myself. Um, <coughs> so it talks about in the, this third full paragraph, if we belong to a religious denomination which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. It does not say we intend to that in lieu of. I remember one sponsee um, when, and she relapsed and we were talking about it and we do the same spiritual practice. And in talking, what we discovered was that she was getting so much out of that spiritual practice, she stopped doing her 10 and 11 work. See, the way that I think about it is, my 10 and 11 work, because of the way my brain is wired, that's my skeleton. That's what supports the, my ability to enjoy the rest of my spiritual work. And if I stop my 10 and 11, I get blocked off again, and I can't get benefit out of that outside spiritual work. So what she saw was she got blocked again because of not doing her 10 and 11, so that spiritual work that she was doing wasn't enough to keep her that mental twist away. Does that make sense? But I also want to encourage you guys, this is when we get to play. right? Step 11, we are now unblocked. This is when we get to call people, ask them who they're reading, ask them who they're listening to, ask them what practices they do. Um, you know, I got into yoga. I, a friend of mine does American Indian drumming. I love I had a sponsee that did Buddhist chanting, and I never had been exposed to that before. So find out. I, I mean, that's why I said I consider myself a spiritual mutt. And be open, because stuff that I wasn't open to three years ago suddenly is resonating. There's a, there's a gentleman that I really get a lot, I'll tell you what, like I really get a lot out of him, and I never wanted to listen to him because he was a priest, and I still had those prejudices. I don't want to hear that Catholic dogma anymore. And I started listening to him like a, um, like six, eight months ago, and I'm getting a lot out of him. And I had to laugh. He's in, I guess he's in his um, mid-70s, and he has prostate cancer. And part of his treatment is estrogen. And he's talking about in this podcast how he's having hot flashes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, who would think I'd have that in common with a priest? We're both getting hot flashes. This is great. I'm like, oh, my God. He's like, I have such compassion for women. I didn't know what they were talking about when they were having. So I just thought that was so funny because I just realized, you know, we can relate to anybody. <laughs> so I just thought that was funny. Okay, so now we've had a morning routine. We've had an evening routine. And the last thing is we're going to pause throughout the day. So that last paragraph on 87, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. Remember, thinking. Thinking is our problem. 
We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. Why is that? Because I'm constantly trying to run the show. And here is what I call the 11-step promises. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. This is um, three lines down on page 88. <coughs> so, I used to ask God for the right emotions. Make me feel better. Make me feel better. What I find is the more that I look at the mental twist, the more that I'm addressing my thinking, the emotions naturally start to calm down. And I love how they put excitement because for me as an addict, a, str a strong good emotion is just as dangerous as a small, strong bad emotion. On either extreme, I am vulnerable. So it says here, we become much more efficient, we do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. So I want you to know this is my opinion. Um, I get um, a little tweaked with some psychology terms, I think, because I have an undergraduate degree and I realize now I got it because I was trying to figure myself out. <laughs> um, but a lot of the terminology today about self-care and self-help and self this and self that, that's dangerous to, in my opinion in my spiritual life because the problem is I was told that I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, that selfish and self-centeredness is, is, is my problem. So when I hear we become much more efficient, we do not tire so easily, what I, the way I do this is I ask God, how can I be more efficient? How can I not be exhausted? Because if I am exhausted and inefficient, I'm in self. I'm being driven by self. Now, I'll give you one example. I was totally exhausted for a while. Just to warn you, my dog, my, my God curses. But I'm praying, like, why? I, gotta, I'm, I can't, I can't not affect it because I'm so exhausted all the time. And I clearly heard from my, my higher power was, turn off your goddamn iPad. Because what was happening was I was playing my iPad games till like 2 o'clock in the morning. So I, I now turn off all electronics at 11, 11 p.m. Now someone might say that I created boundaries or I'm practicing self-care. But for me that language is dangerous because it makes it sound like it's coming from me. So God wants me to be efficient. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be joyful. So let me ask God how that's going to happen versus me trying to figure out how to make that happen. Because when I have done that, I've, I've once again came crawling into the rooms of LA. I might even come to the same conclusions, but I find it much more peaceful to have those things that take care of me so I can be more... Because the reason I want to be... I want to take care of me today is because I, that way if I can take care of me, I can help you. So it's kind of like that thing in the plane where they say put the ma mask on you. The reason they're telling you put the mask on you, you is so you can help somebody else. Whereas I think a lot of the society is telling you take care of you and screw everybody else. And that's not what this book is about. This is a self-abandonment program, not a self-help program. <laughs> Make sense? So let's... Um, <coughs> the longest paragraph now in the big book. It works, it really does. It says we alcoholics are undisciplined, so we let God discipline us in the simple way we just outlined. So this is the point that I consider me walking shoulder to shoulder with my sponsees. We are now two recovered people. I have shown them the skill set. I've helped them get a connection with the power. It's now God's job to discipline them. I work really hard to make them not dependent on me. So this is when they're going to get in touch with their higher power. I'm going to be a resource for them to help them. But my job as far as being their quote-unquote sponsor, telling them what to do on a daily basis is gone. 
Now for me too, I'm someone who's overly rigid, so the way that God disciplines me is sometimes to make me less disciplined, to lighten up a little bit. But once again, I ask God to remove that. Not always easy. I still get anxious when I'm going to be late and stuff like that. But I ask God to soften me as, I, as, I'm, as I'm walking through this path. So we are at um, 9.54. <coughs> so why don't we take um, a six-minute break and we'll come back at 10 a.m. Thank you. Okay, just started the recorder, so we're on our last session for today. I'm going to try to stop by 11 a.m. or a little bit before, so give you guys some time for some open sharing, and we'll turn the recorder off for that. So just to go, oh, does anybody know who these keys are for? We still have the keys that are, haven't been claimed yet. Okay. Okay. All right, so we didn't go over. I always refer, keep forgetting this. So my prejudices for step 11. Is step 11 only religious practices? No. Okay. And is it simply saying the serenity prayer every time you're upset? Okay. And you know what? I'm going to wait to do the, um, the questions till the end because that, that way they won't be on the recording. Um, and then you guys, if you want to add anything to it, let me know. So step 12, <coughs> my two prejudices were that being a sponsor is a, being a diet buddy and a life coach. And that, that um, sponsoring is optional and it's really only for the gurus in OA. Okay. So let's look at page 89, which is the first um, page of working with others. It says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with others. And I don't know about you, but immunity from drinking sounds like a really good promise that I want to have. And one of the things I, I often think about with this, there was, there was a, a historian that, not in AA, but he um, was getting his doctorate in, in history, and he wrote his, his doctoral thesis on Alcoholics Anonymous in the early 1970s. So right around when Bill died. And he has a bunch of YouTube things where he talks about historically why he felt it grow. Like for example, he felt in the 30s it was able to grow because it was the Great Depression and a lot of these guys weren't working and they had a lot of time to work with people. He feels one of the reasons it spread so well in the 1940s was because of World War II. These guys were being drafted and being moved across the country which allowed people then to move AA across the country. <coughs> but one of the things he said was that he feels that AA worships the first 100 too much and that they don't give enough credit to the people who didn't make it because a lot of their lessons were on failures as much as successes. So sometimes I like to flip a sentence. So with that sentence I often think it's practical experience shows that those that don't work with others relapse. And that's been my experience as well. Because the way that I continue to work the steps is by helping other people work the steps. Now it says um, in that last paragraph <coughs> on that page, perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. I know a lot of compulsive overeaters. I don't know a lot that want to recover. I know a lot that want to feel comforted and hugged and being told that they're loved, but they don't want to do the work. So it might, it is, is difficult. One of the things I tell my sponsees when they start working with others is grab about five people and ask, offer to go through the doctor's opinion and they get freaked out. And I'm like, look, you're lucky if two of them call you, and you're lucky if one of them show up. 
because that's the reality. Can you say again what your version of the practical experience that was brilliant? <laughs> practical experience shows that those that do not sponsor relapse. So, so you said grab five people and uh, see if any of them show up. So, do you, it, it, people get together and do it face to face, or it's on the phone? It depends. It depends on what you know. Let, let me let me get quiet. Let me, let me get quiet. Let me, let me tell you what I tell them before I even tell them that. Okay. So when we get to the point with sponsoring, there is no you know there's no requirements as far as. Um, how you sponsor, but you can have requirements as a sponsor, if that makes sense. Oh, that's good, yeah. So get quiet and ask God how you can most effectively carry this message. So something as simple as what time of the day are you more, because you have to be 100% focused on your sponsee. So are you a morning person, an afternoon person, an evening person? I only sponsor at night. I would not pay, I would not pay attention in the morning. Think about how many times a week you want to talk with people. Do you want to do it daily? You want to do it? I do it. I personally do it three times a week for a half hour. Maybe you're. you're I had sponsees that I've taken through that way, and they told me it doesn't work for them to sponsor. They they need at least an hour because a half hour is too short. So <coughs> most people will start to sponsor as their sponsor, but then as they start to feel more comfortable, they're going to you know ask. I always say ask God into your talents. How do you want to handle the food? Do you want to have them commit the food daily to you on the phone, texting? Do you want to not be involved with the food at all? How do you want to handle the tools? Do you want to require them to read or write or go to meetings? Because <coughs> when you ask someone, are they willing to go to any lengths? Most people will say yes until you ask them to do something. <laughs> so you want to be clear on what you require and then say, are you willing to do that? In the back. I'm just wondering though about the concept of the sponsors I was sponsored. Well, no, I just think because that's the what you were exposed to. So a lot of people default to what was, what was comfortable. So if you if you if you the question was the idea of sponsoring like you were sponsored, so if, if you were taken through the steps a certain way, that's probably going to be your comfort level because it's the only thing you know at that point. I'll give you an example. I have a, a sponsee after I got her through the steps and she's on vision for you, and she announced herself available as a sponsor, and she got nine phone calls, and I thought okay I'm going to have to like walk her down from the ledge, and she's like okay Kim this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a phone bridge, I'm going to take them all through steps one through three, at four I'll, I'll, I'll divide them off, see how many are left, and I'll take them through the rest individually. And I'm like, oh my God. And then I remembered she's a corporate trainer. <laughs> of course that's what she's going to do. Because God's going to use her skill as a corporate trainer that she's going to take groups through the steps. Even though I didn't do that with her. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yes, they're going to walk them through the book, but for example, I take people through the book in about two to three months. People tell me that's way too fast, and people will tell me that's way too slow. So you're going to have different personalities bringing bringing people through differently. Does that make sense? So you're you're going to ask you like when you said the phone. I've had taken people through the phone. They don't feel comfortable doing phone work, so they will only work with people face to face. 
So it's, it's all going to depend, but what I'm saying is that you need to let the sponsee know what you, how you sponsor so they can make a decision. For example, with me, I speak to people three days a week. I think it's very important I tell people that because a lot of people want daily contact. And if they want that, they should not be working with me. I also tell them once they're through with step 12, we get them through the working with others chapter, their job is now to help others, and they call me when they need me. I don't have long-term relationships with sponsees. A lot of people want long-term relationships with their sponsor. Doesn't mean that it's right or wrong, but you're not going to get it from me, so you need to seek out someone that is going to give you, give you that. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. That way, yeah. <laughs> I, heard, I, heard a speaker say, I heard a speaker say recently, when they say work the steps, the work is step 12, the preparation is 1 through 11. And I love that. That when they say work the steps, the work is step 12, the preparation is 1 through 11. Okay, I, I'm, I'm concerned. If you guys just want to go to questions, we can do that. Because um, I don't, okay, I just don't want to, okay. Um, so that's what I kind of tell my sponsees is to kind of see what they're going to do. Now, I, anyone in here who's not at that point where they're sponsoring, when we're going through this chapter, I want you to ask yourself, are you sponsorable? As we're talking about how to sponsor, are you someone that is going to be willing to do the work and be sponsored by people? Because that's what I find a lot. A lot of people want to sponsor, a lot of people don't want to be sponsored. Okay? Um, so at the top of page 90, <coughs> now what they're going to do, I'm just going to be just cherry picking this, but quite a few of these pages are telling you how to find sponsees. Because once again, this was written at a time when there was not a fellowship. So they're ex expecting someone to get mailed a book in Seattle and have no meetings. So how do you go out and find alcoholics if there's no meetings to find them at? Today, we're very lucky. Just go to an OA meeting. I joke, but I suggest you don't go up to the fat person in line at McDonald's and ask them to spon if you want to sponsor them. We can just go to a meeting and, and, and look for the people who are, who are teary-eyed. Look for the, the person that when you're, when you're, if you're sharing that's bobbleheading you and see if they need help. So it says, when you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient, realizing they are dealing with a sick person. If there is any indication he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, his religious leanings. So first it's telling us, if someone doesn't want to put the food down, leave them alone. And they're going to say that multiple times. This is not mean, but what I think of is I don't want to give anyone the false impression that the steps will work if you're eating. And if I'm pushing them and trying to make them do something, when they're really ready, they're not going to feel comfortable coming to me because they're going to feel beat up. So I don't push or pride. But they need to be willing to put the food down. I always, one of my favorites was I, was I took a girl through the doctor's opinion in January, and at the end of it, we identified her binge foods, and I said, okay, are you willing to put these down 100% so we can proceed? And she was quiet, and then she said, maybe I'll call you back after Girl Scout cookie season is over. And I thought, I get it. I get it. That's a limited period of time. Why would you put your food down now? But that's it. You know, it's not a judgment. If, if you're if not willing, that's great. Let me know when you're willing. And then they talk about getting general information. They're talking religious leanings. I personally like to find out, and I do a lot of phone work with people I've never met. So 
Are they coming from the obesity side? Are they coming from the anorexic side? Are they coming from the bulimic side? So I know how to approach them. I've, I can't believe I say this out loud, but I'm grateful I came from all three sides now. Because, But if someone's obese, I'm not going to tell them about what it was like to be underweight. And if someone's an anorexic, I'm not going to tell them about my fat stories. So I'm going to try to meet them where they're at. Big thing is, how long have you been in OA? Are you brand new or have you been around for decades? And if you've been around for decades, we've talked about a lot of the sex in OA, you know, what's your experience? Have you been in HOW or See How or maybe Food Addicts Anonymous, which is a separate fellowship? What is your experience with that? And then also too, if they're coming from another fellowship, AA people are tough because they think, what are you going to tell me about my book? So I need to know what are those prejudices so I can more, um, you know, be more helpful to that person. So it's a great conversation to have in the beginning. It says wait for a lucid interval. Um, ask him if he, if he wants to quit for good. Once again, not today. Quit for good. And if he would go to any extreme to do so, which is when I tell them what I, I always say, let me tell you how I sponsor before, you, before you, we go any further. And then is, that's what they agree to. Um, but if we're, you know, lucid interval, I think that's something we do. You know, we're, we're such people of extremes. We have people that will sponsor someone and they, they are, they're eating the entire time through the steps. And then we have other people that say, well, you have to be abstinent for a month before we can start the steps. Like, if I could be abstinent for a month without the steps, I don't need the steps, you know? So that lucid interval, I personally love my home group because it's Sunday morning and people are binging on Saturday night. So they're desperate, they're shaking. When I talk to AA people and they, someone goes into a rehab for 28 days, they're not waiting until that person comes out of the rehab. They're going into the rehab two or three days while they're still shaking with withdrawal because that's when someone's willing to do it. That's when we're most desperate. And I think sometimes in a way we poo-poo, oh, you're eating, I can't be around you. When you're not eating, give me a call. Now once again, this is for me personally. I offer to take someone through the doctor's opinion because a lot of times people might even think they're abstinent, but they're not because they don't understand what abstinence is. They're imitating what somebody else told them. So I kind of consider doctor's opinion like Bill and Ebby at the kitchen table while Bill is drinking and Ebby's telling him about what happened to him. And then when Bill says, I want to do this, he checks himself into the hospital and that's when Ebby comes and takes him through the steps. So I take someone through the doctor's opinion, we identify their, their alcoholic foods, ask them if they're willing to put down 100%. If they say yes, I make an appointment probably in a couple days. So by a couple days they have 24, 48 hours. Let's get moving. Now you're gonna hear people have a lot of different opinions on that. My feeling is, is what you're doing working? If what you're doing's working, don't change anything. If what you're doing's not working, maybe be opening up to do it differently when you're sponsoring. So then it says, um, <coughs> on p bottom of page 91, that last paragraph that starts out, see your man alone. In the middle of that paragraph it says, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. And going back to Mr. Webster again, a sketch is a preliminary drawing giving the essential features without details. So, <coughs> I mentioned this yesterday, but when I used to tell my story, I would talk about being a Catholic school kid, and I've never been married, and I don't have children, and all these. Nobody, nobody relates into that. 
I'm supposed to be giving a sketch of my drinking, my sketch of my eating. I'm talking about the, the twofold journals. I'm talking about the times that I tried to quit and couldn't. I'm talking about the times that I was in the food and, and saying this is going to be different. And what I personally do is as I'm telling these stories, I look for the bobbleheads. And if someone's relating, I try to remember that in the back of my head to be able to use that again the next time I work with somebody. Because it's, that's what I'm trying to get them to identify in with. Not my story, but my drinking history. Does that make sense? And don't tell them anything about how it's accomplished. So what we're going to see is the approach in the big book is problem, 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 problem. I used to give beginners meetings and I would tell people about the fourth step when they first came into an OA meeting. Or tell them about the ninth step. And they're like, I want to lose 30 pounds. Like, what are you talking about? Because they don't, I need to sell, I remember doing this and I was working with a girl and she started laughing. She's like, she's like, Kim, I'm, I'm a, a pharmaceutical, suit, pharmaceutical sales rep. She's like, this is like our training that we go through. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, when I'm trying to sell um, a high cholesterol medication, I'm not selling the medicine. I'm selling the dangers of high cholesterol. Because once you're sold on the dangers of high cholesterol, you'll buy the drug. So that's what we're doing. I'm not selling the 12 steps. I'm selling the need for the 12 steps. So what I'm doing is I'm selling the problem, trying to get to them to the point that they're screwed. If you have this allergy to the body, you're never going to be able to have any of those foods again. And if you have this mental twist, you're going to eat over and over again. So the way that they describe it in the book is on top of 92, tell them how baffled you were the struggles you made to stop, that mental twist, the mental incons inconsistencies, the queer mental condition before the first drink. If he is not too alcoholic, he will relate in. Continue to speak of alcohol. Actually, I'll mention this with this paragraph. I went to this um, big book series in Philadelphia, and it's kind of, I don't think it's official, but they kind of call it Recovery Row, because a lot of recovery houses for young heroin addicts, especially a lot of girl recovery houses. and. Um, they actually can't sit in the first couple rows because they reserve it for the recovery houses. And we often end in the promises, right? We end with these high, wonderful notes. Well, this is how this meeting ends every single meeting. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of mind and body which accompanied it. Keep his attention focused mainly on your own personal experience. Explain why many are doomed who never realize their predicament. And that's how they end the meeting. Because it's in hopelessness that we crave hope. But also in that chapter, it talks about <coughs> trying to get the doctor to confirm what you're saying. But it says, but you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. So it's not mean of us to get people to feel hopeless because we do have a solution. I, I think so many of us back off, and I know it's my, oh, don't worry about it, it'll be okay. All right, we'll love you too, love yourself. That's not helping anybody. You know, it's in their hopelessness that they're going to be open to this. So it says, even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Tell him, let him ask you that question if you will. Tell him exactly what happened to you and stress the spiritual feature freely. So it's problem, problem, problem. And when they ask, how did you escape? that's when you introduce the solution. And it says, use everyday language. That's why when we're going through the step one chapters, I try to abstain from saying the word God. I'm trying to use the word power. I'm trying
trying to speak more um, holistically about spirituality because I don't want anyone to be turned off by spirituality or by a specific idea of, of God. <coughs> At that point, you outline the, the um, program of action. Um, on page 94, that first full paragraph towards the end, it says, if your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you have perhaps made a friend. Maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better he will be more likely to follow your suggestions. So once again, we're, you know, a friend of mine, when we, we do, the, do talks, we always said, our goal is to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comforted. Mm -hmm. So on page 95, <coughs> the last three paragraphs are ifs, or these are conditions. So I often, I think a lot of the conversations I have with people is, what do I do if my sponsee does this or if my sponsee does that? The book is really clear about three different, three different things here. So number one, if he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more. So if the person just wants to commit their food to me, I'm not I, go to go to you know go to Jenny Craig. They'll take your food. I'm not here as a food sponsor. I'm here because I want to help you have a spiritual awakening. If you're looking for just advice, and I always used to joke when I I could only sponsor two people because between policing their food and telling them how to live their life, it was pretty exhausting. You know, and here I am. Never been married, don't have kids, and I'm telling people if they should leave their husband and how they should raise their children. Talk about arrogance! Like I'm like it was ridiculous. So my job until he changes his mind, how is he going to change his mind? The food is going to beat them into a state of reasonableness. That's what's going to change their mind. So I do not fire people, but I get fired a lot because I'm I'm saying that you you know. If you're not willing to do the work, and I think it was yesterday, I don't believe a damn word anyone says. I believe their actions. For example, I require two phone calls a day to recovered people, and they have to let me know who they talk to in like one sentence about what they talk to them about. The people that will do that and put left message, I get a little worried about them. The person who puts down five names because they talk to five people, I'm like, yeah. Because there will, there's people who want to do the absolute minimum, and there's people that are seeking the solution. See, I remember I was pretty new sponsoring and this girl, um, I talked three days a week and she called me up and she apologized because she couldn't wait till our next appointment. So she started doing Bill's story. I said, well, who'd you do it with? And she's told me and I said, well, where did you get to? She's like, we went to page eight. I said, awesome, let's start on page nine. Because she was so anxious for recovery, she was doing the work. I've been through Bill's story. It's about her going through Bill's story, not me. So it's the work that you put into it as a sponsee that's going to give you that. So sometimes you know the people who are going above and beyond those are the ones that I'm like, all right, they're 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 invested in their recovery. If I'm more invested in your recovery than you are, it's not a good sign. So that's why I say I get fired a lot because people say, well, she fired me because I wouldn't do the work. No, if you're not doing the work, I need to go to the next person that's willing to do the work. The second one, if he is sincerely interested and he wants to see you again, ask him to read this book at the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. 
He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife or his friends. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. <coughs> so I, I don't make someone read the whole book. I think I told you I had this doctor's opinion assignment. Honestly, I'm just trying to test whether they have any willingness. Are you willing to listen to a couple podcasts? Are you willing to look up a couple words in the dictionary? Are you willing to write down your, your foods and all your binge foods? I'm just looking for willingness. You know, it, it's, um, and then I don't push or prod. Uh, an AA friend of mine says that you, and it, well, the big book says, and, and he, I like the way he put it, the big book tells us we're going to lose people in steps four, nine, and 12. And that's exactly where I lose people. And he calls it the fourth step fade away, the ninth step no, no show, and the 12 step trap door. <laughs> but that's exactly where I lose people. I'm not chasing them down. If I'm in meditation on step 11 and someone comes to mind, I might throw them a text thinking of you, but I'm not chasing them. Because once again, if I'm chasing them, they're going to run away. So maybe they need to go out to have, to have a further surrender, and when they call me, I'm more than willing to help again. If I have the time, like I, I, you know, once again, with that not being efficient and not too exhausted, that was something I had to learn. There's a point where I have too many people and I get angry and I get annoyed and I'm not helping anybody. So I always get into meditation when someone asks me to work with them um, and ask God, can I be useful to this person? And that's pushed me in different directions. In my home group, because it's face-to-face, -face, I've taken two and three people through the steps together. And it's been beautiful because they become support for each other. You know, So there's different things that you learn and you get better at and you feel more comfortable at. But in general, the question is always, can I be useful to this person? And then step the third if is, if he thinks they can do the job in some other way or prefer some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. But point out that we alcoholics have, have in common that, that you would like any case to be friendly and let it go at that. I believe my God is much bigger than the first 164 pages in this book. But that's the only thing I had to carry because that worked for me. So it's actually an act of humility. If someone wants to do the steps through the 12 and 12 or through a workbook, I encourage them to do that, but I can't help you with it because it, I didn't have that experience. So as a member of OA, I think I have an obligation to let them know what meetings study the 12 and 12, what meetings do the workbooks, what sponsors use that material so they can try to find that path. Like I told you, the one part I really have a hard time with are these big book meetings that believe don't believe in the allergy, and they're bringing people through the steps while they're, while they're eating and telling them to sponsor and say, well, if, if you sponsor, you'll stop eating. But, but what I feel, too, is that that might bring them to a level of desperation that maybe they're willing to put the food down. It scares me to death. I really have a hard time with it. But I, get, I also get excited when I have some, a sponsee that has been in those groups because I now feel like that person has depth and weight to talk about those groups in a way that I don't because I never attended those groups. I'm just going to go off for a second when you said a vision for you sponsor. There is no such thing as a vision for you sponsor. I just want to make that clear. A vision for you is simply an overeaters anonymous meeting that focuses on the big book and everyone loves the big book. When you talk to individual members, you're going to see they're going to have different approaches to help bring people through the steps. And there's as many sick people in a vision for you as there are in any other meeting. And I think people get locked into the idea that if I'm talking to someone from vision for you, they must be healthy. That's not true. We're, we're, we're all human beings. You have a group of 400 people on the line. Not everyone's healthy. You get any group of, how you go into my family, a group of 15 people, not everyone's healthy. 
Um, but I want to mention there is no such thing as a vision for you program. There's no such thing as a vision for you way of going through the steps. It's a group that people who love the big book flock together. And that's what the vision for you is. Um, so I encourage people to, to follow their hearts. Then the top in 96. <coughs> do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you have to offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot and will not work with you. So this is what the book is saying, and I'll just reflect my own experience with this. Is one of the things I think is so sad is when a meeting says, are there any sponsors here? And maybe five hands go up. And they say, are any sponsors available? And all five hands go down. And the rest of the meeting tells, tells these newcomers how important it is to get a sponsor. So I want you to pray about this. If you're working with people and they're constantly in relapse, are you being helpful? And are you, what you're doing is denying the people in the meeting that maybe are willing to put the food down to have a sponsor because you are, as they're saying, wasting your time with someone who does not want to put the food and does not want to get better. The other end of it is, if you're sponsoring three people and they're all through the steps and you're basically become girlfriends and maybe you're doing 10 and 11 work with you, my opinion is you're leaving yourself vulnerable for relapse because you stopped working the steps with your sponsees because they're through the steps. You need to be taking people through the work to protect your own abstinence. And if the only thing you're doing is talking to recovered people, you stopped working with people. And if our fellowship was a little healthier, maybe I'd feel differently that you can spend a lot of time with someone in relapse because all the other people who need sponsors have people working with them. That is not my experience in OA. If you want to do extra work with recovered people because everyone in your meeting is recovered, I'd feel differently. That's not my experience in Over Years Anonymous. Chris Raymer, one of the gentlemen that I told you about in AA, um, he gets frustrated. He said, he, people get angry with him about how many people he works with. And he said, you know what? We have a 15% recovery rate and the 15% are trying to are trying to sponsor the 85%. And maybe if you took on a couple extra sponsees, I wouldn't have to I wouldn't have to sponsor so many. So I want you to think about that. It talks about here on page 97. Never avoid these responsibilities meaning working with people, but be sure you are doing the right thing if you assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to be the Good Samaritan every day if need be. Sponsoring is really inconvenient. But we talked about yesterday, being in the disease is a hell of a lot more inconvenient. If sponsoring, in my experience, if sponsoring is comfortable, I'm probably not doing enough because I should be inconvenienced. I am divinely inconvenienced on a daily basis. Okay, so let's go to page 98. <coughs> Actually, the last line on 90, 97 into 98. For the type of alcoholic who is able and willing to get well, little charity in the ordinary sense of the word is needed or wanted. The men who cry for money and shelter before conquering alcohol are on the wrong track. Once again, I work with mostly women, so usually it's family, family and kids. They gotta get that all settled down before they deal with this food thing. 
and they're letting us know that that's you got you know like I said the best gift I give anyone in my life today is put my recovery first how can I be I'm not a mom but how could you be available to your kids if you're work? I always remember this one girl <coughs> my one um, sponsee that's all she's ever actually I'm not gonna say it on the recording never mind um, so it goes in here it's not the matter of giving that is in question but when and how to give that often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely on our assistance rather than upon God. And that sentence confused me because step 12 is service. That's the way I was taught. So what do they mean? What they're saying is when we start playing God. If I start acting like, you know, I'm the one that's, that's taking it, they're my sponsees, and they have to listen to me, and they can't make decisions without me, I'm blocking them off from getting a relationship without God. So it's not a question of when and how to give. It's, it's um, not a matter of giving, but when and how to give. So I try to wean my sponsees off of me as much as possible, which is why I have them make phone calls, because I want them to build up a fellowship around them. The way that I find with that fellowship building is I always have my hand ahead of me for those who are further down the path. I have my hand behind me to the still suffering, and I have people shoulder to shoulder that are on the same you know, level I'm at. And if I do that, I am surrounded by fellowship. So that's why I have my sponsees at step three and step five and step nine call the newcomers and share that experience with them. Because it starts to teach them how to share this. They're not sponsoring anybody, but they're sharing their experience, strength, and hope because they've had an experience. I think to myself, how many times in a meeting have I heard someone say, let me tell you about the fourth step. Never did one, but let me tell you what I think about the fourth step. <laughs> You know, so if, if we need to get experience with this work in order to carry it. So I don't want to make them dependent on me. Um, I'm going to show you my favorite, uh, my favorite promise in the big book on page 100. The first full paragraph. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress, which is why I consider myself walking shoulder to shoulder with my sponsees once we're both recovered. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When you look back, we realize the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. Isn't that cool? That's my favorite promise. Follow the dictates of a higher power and I can be happy regardless of whatever is going on in my life. That's, and I don't know if this is the true definitions, but I heard this in a spiritual talk and it resonated with me. I always seeked happiness and happiness is based on the outside world. Now what I seek is joy and joy is an internal part of the world. So. If, I'm, if I have joy in my heart and I'm not dependent on the happiness of the outside world, I can be peaceful regardless of what's going on. And that's what I really want. So that right now is my, is my favorite promise. So that's all I'm going to um, <coughs> cover in the chapter. But I want to expand this conversation. Is, you know, working with others is not just sponsoring. So how can we help the still suffering in our, in our, um, in our meetings? I love vision for you. But what I worry about is that people isolate and envision for you and they don't go to face-to-face -face meetings. You know, we're preaching to the choir if we're in a really strong meeting. We need to go to the weaker meetings that need this message. You know, I often think that um, most MOIC in OA is you come five minutes late and you leave five minutes early. 
and there's a person there that's, that needs help and there's nobody there. I personally don't come, well, I'm always early anywhere, but <coughs> I don't come extra early to a meeting. But I always try not to make plans for at least 45 minutes after a face-to-face -face meeting in case anybody needs to talk. After a meeting, are we going to our girlfriends to catch up on what happened and there's a new person or somebody who's crawled their way into the rooms after another relapse and they're being ignored? I remember my, the first AA meeting I went to and it was a group of 100 people and they asked if anybody was new and I didn't say anything because I'm not an alcoholic. And five women approached me after that meeting to see if I needed help. I didn't know what to do. I've never had that happen in an OA meeting. I was so grateful last week as I was at my home group and three people stood up to um, say that they looked for sponsors and after the meeting, and I'm saying, oh God, do I have time for this? I'm going to go to Seattle. And I, at the end of the meeting, they were inundated with all the people in my meeting saying, let me help you. They were dead because they understand they need to sponsor. You know, think about your meeting formats. Is your meeting format supporting recovery? You know, is, is, is the focus on the steps or is the focus on let's have a discussion about what's going on? I mean, the ones I always loved is let me get current. I told you last week how my boss yelled at me, let me get current and tell you what happened the next day. We're, we're not junior therapy. Are we focused on the meetings? My home group has always been a big book meeting. But for years what it was is we read 20 minutes of the big book and then we'd have open sharing and nothing to do with what we read in the big book. Now we're a page-by-page -page big book study and it says you share on your experience with what we have read and the moderators enforce that. And it's a really rich meeting. And I'm not saying money-wise, but just to kind of, I always, I'm, I'm, I'm an accountant, so I think of it that way. But in my inner group, my, my meeting, basically our seventh tradition is larger than 90% of the meetings combined. And I'm not talking about the money, but why do we have a larger seventh tradition? Because we have bodies in the room. Because people find recovery there. If I thought the funny joke, my mom's in a way, and she has a, um, her Monday night meeting. And it's one of those, we'll love you till you love yourself kind of meetings and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I heard, overheard two people talk and they said, well, no, if you're in relapse, go to that Monday night meeting. They'll, they'll hug you. But you know, don't, go to that, don't go to that Sunday morning. They're going to make you do something. And I thought, yeah, got the meeting's got to wrap. You've got to do something if you come to the Sunday morning meeting. You know? So what can you do for your meeting to support in the format to support recovery? Yes? Maybe a weird question. I met I met someone I met a long recovered OA at a convention and she lives in a remote area and only gets to go to one in-person meeting. So she's very that's her one chance to have a meeting with lots of recovery. And she told me that she she tells her her partners in this meeting, I need you to be abstinent. I need you to work the steps. And I when I heard her say that I thought Wow, that, that's great. I wish someone would say that to me. Um, but and I thought about saying it in my meetings. But then I thought, well, if I said that to if I said to somebody, I need you to be abstinent, I might be chasing them away, or I might be hurting their feelings, or I might be, make them feel inadequate. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's really judgmental. Okay. And I think it's it's and that is someone who's not ground. My opinion, someone who's not grounded in recovery. I don't need anyone to be abstinent. I'm grounded in a power greater than myself. I want to help you and show you. Let me show you what I've done. If you, if you want what I have, do what I do. So I think that we need to be examples of what recovery can do versus telling people they, 
they need to do something in order to be wanted. You know what I mean? So that's where the, think about this, this is, the, this is the ending of the third step prayer. Go in and bear witness to what these steps have done for you and people will ask you for it. We're not there to shove it down their throat. You know, if you want it, great. If you don't, that's fine too. You know, and it sounds to me like she's scared because she feels vulnerable to be around people that are in relapse. I should not feel scared to be around people in relapse. I should feel like I want to help them, not that, I, that I'm fearful of them. And if people are remote, once again, the phone meetings are fabulous. It allows people in remote areas to, to get stuff. And, you know, I, I have a sponsee right now in, in Australia that's setting up, um, I, shall, I don't think she'll mind me saying something like recording, but it's funny. When she emailed me, and I was like, I can't do this. Oh, my God. Like I, you know, I said, listen, this is the time I have. It's 9 p.m. I don't know what the heck that means in Australian time. This girl actually changed her work hours to work. This is, she wanted this. But then when, I, when she agreed to it, I thought, oh, my God, I get to speak to Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> and the first time I talked to her, she sounds like she's from Brooklyn. She's actually an Italian Jewish girl, Orthodox Jewish girl. And I'm like, this is not the accent I thought. Um, but she's from Australia, is forming WhatsApp groups and phone meetings for Italian-speaking people in Italy. So it's, it's you know, you, you create the fellowship you crave and what you have around you. I mean, I, a lot of people I know who say, well, I, I have to go to AA in order to get this, you know, get this message. I'm not seeing it in OA. I can't even tell how many people have gone to AA and, and found people that need this program and running, bringing them back to OA. You know, so I'm going to turn the record. You know, let me let me say one more thing, and then we're going to go to questions, just because of the time. Because I want to end with this. <coughs> well, first of all, the prejudices. So, is being a sponsor, being a diet buddy, and a life coach? No. no. Okay, and is sponsoring optional? No. And is only the gurus of OA supposed to be sponsoring? No. Okay. So I always like to, to end with this story I heard. There was a little boy that, saw, you know, in a very you know, rural town, and there was signs up that there was going to be a circus, and he was so excited because he had never seen a circus. So he goes to his dad and says, Daddy, Daddy, can I go to the circus? And he said, no, if you do all your chores this week, I'll give you the dollar and you can go to the circus. So he did all the, the chores and his dad gave him the dollar and he's going into town and he's so excited and he sees this parade and he sees things he's never seen before. He's seeing giraffes and tigers and bears and people swallowing swords and, and doing all these circus tricks. And at the very end are some clowns <coughs> and the kid is so excited. And at the end of it, a clown tips his hat and he puts the dollar in the, in the, um, in the hat and he goes home. Because he doesn't realize he didn't see the circus. It was just the parade. The circus was under the big top and he didn't know any better. So I just want to tell you, a weekend like this is the parade. This is a big show and tell operation. The three, the three ring circus is step 12. The three ring circus is watching someone awaken it's going into a home group and watching it grow from two or three people to 12 to 20. It's, it's, it's seeing a, your inner group grow. It's seeing going to world service and seeing, seeing things grow because you are contributing to it. So I just want to say before we go to questions is, is don't miss the circus. Recognize this is the parade. So I'm going to turn the recording off. Okay. <laughs>